Morning. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. And then, uh, if you're using your, your Bible on the chair, it is on page 637 is where it is. 637. Uh, as you could tell, I am not Jason Tippett, who's normally here. He has a lot more facial hair. And I'm about 15 skin shades darker. So... Uh, I am Vincent Hoppy. I am the church planning resident over at Village 7 Presbyterian Church. I was called here just over a year ago to move downtown and work toward establishing a church there, a church that seeks the flourishing of Colorado Springs. And we do that by connecting, connecting with God, connecting with one another. We do that also by caring for those in our midst. And then also cultivating right where we live, work, and play. That means giving our gifts, time, talent, and efforts to see Colorado Springs be all that it could be. Um, so we turn here, and I need to turn on my timer because if not, we will be here a long time. And so there we go. Great. Well, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom have often told you, and I now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we wait a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let us pray. Almighty God, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts so that we would love you more. And that we would take that love outside these doors. And that we would love our neighbors in ordinary ways, caring for them as image bearers. I pray that you would transform our love here so that we would care for one another in radical ways. Help us to see Jesus and see that he is beautiful and worth our entire lives. Almighty God, please open our hearts to your word. I ask we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, writing about hope and meaning, Viktor Frankl, he was a psychiatrist in a Nazi concentration camp. So, he's writing about hope. 
And he writes this, The prisoner who had lost faith in his future was doomed. With this loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. An example of this, he goes on to write, was in February, an inmate had told Victor about a dream he had a few days earlier in February. And in the dream, he was told that the war, World War II, was going to end by, by March 30th and that they would be free. When it became clear that he would not be freed and that the war was not going to end, the prisoner fell ill on the 29th and ran to high temperature. On the 30th, he went unconscious. And on the 31st, he died. You see, what Viktor Frankl is telling us is that we are hope-filled creatures. And what you believe about your future will determine how you live in the present. It'll determine how you live amongst your neighbors, how you live at work, how you live at the gym. You know, but Paul implores, implores the Philippians to root their hope, their ultimate love, in the secure work of Jesus on their behalf. On his never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. And so he says, I press on, and as I press on, I want you to imitate me. I want you to stand firm. So he continues this. And so here's the thing. When we lose sight of the hope, of, of that hope, the hope of Jesus, we will fail to live in ways that are fitting to who you are in Jesus. So misplaced hope, misplaced hope does this. It will, and, and in, we get a lot of pressure to, to misplace our hope in anything other than, than Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And if you misplace your hope, this is what's going to happen. You're going to end up in one ditch on the side of apathy, or you'll end up in the other ditch of self-righteousness. A ditch of apathy or a ditch of self-righteousness. Okay, and the ditch of apathy looks like this. You end up being suspicious of everyone and everything. You doubt everything. You're extremely pessimistic, and you believe nothing really matters, and you spend your time self-loathing. You depress everyone around you. All right? The other ditch is self-righteousness. You believe everyone's an idiot. You think it's always us versus them. You always, you're exhausted trying to keep up appearances. You're defensive to a fault. And everyone is exhausted trying, to, trying not to offend you. You're liable to fall in either of these ditches if you end up do it, uh, building your hope or placing your hope in being the best mom, the best father, uh, the best teacher. You're ba- basing your hope on your earning potential. Uh, having the most beautiful house on the block, you place your hope in anything, you're going to end up in either of those two ditches because it depends on you. And when you can't live up, you end up being apathetic. Or you grit your teeth and you try to deflect and make everyone look inferior to you and your superiority. You end up in the ditches. And both will destroy you. Both will destroy you. And so this pressure was real for our first century brothers. So Paul's telling these Philippians, like, hey, you're about to fall off onto either side. And the pressures that they had were the, from the power of the Roman Empire, Jewish nationalism that was concerned about purity, and also the amorality of the culture. But we live in a pressurized world now. 
You know that. You guys could turn on the news. You can see that. Well, I don't know how many people are actually turning on the news. It's probably getting their news in 140 characters on Twitter is the way you end up getting it. And so we face the pressures of the powerful secular agenda that may tell you to just keep your religion at home, keep it quiet, don't tell anybody, or behind the Christian fortification, behind walls of self-righteous, hey, let's just get it together, let's live really moral lives, let them destroy themselves out there. You see, and also there's the, the seduction of consumerism and entertainment. Every time I get a little alert from Amazon, I'm tempted to like, oh, let me buy something and soothe my soul that way and place my hope in my buying power. So this is it. Christian, you're going to be told you need to change your archaic views on sexuality, the exclusivity of Jesus, the authority of the Bible, But also, if you live the truly Christian life, an ordinary life of loving God and loving neighbor, you're also going to be called by some inside the church, you're going to be called by them, you're going to be called a compromising liberal. Those outside the church are probably going to call you, you know, uh, they're going to call you unenlightened. They're going to call you a bigot. They're going to call you backwards. You see, God's people were called to be this royal priesthood, They were supposed to image him to the rest of the world. They were supposed to be loving, kind. They were supposed to take care of others. And that was the life that he called them to. And so Paul's like, all right, don't give up hope. Don't fall into either ditch. Place it in Jesus. So the Christian life message is matured through the presence of pressure. And Paul knows this. He knows that a life lived and poured out for the love of God and neighbor will be the powerful counter-cultural means by which the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is going to commend itself. Um, Someone's probably saying, yeah, 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 okay, I get that. But everyone needs hope. Everyone needs something to cling on to and live by. And it doesn't necessarily have to be true. All right? So it's kind of like Mary Poppins where they start singing that song, you know, just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You guys are looking at me cross-eyed. Okay? Um, So what it is is you just need a little bit of something to get you through the day. But that isn't what Paul's saying. He's saying that Jesus Christ's resurrection Him overcoming the grave is the real deal, holy field, historic love. And it it undoes that. You see, hope built on fancy is superficial. See, Paul's in prison for his faith. And he's proposing that this hope is real. It's Action 7 news real. It is not advice for you. See, there's a difference between news and in reporting what Paul is trying to tell you, that this is going to change your life, and fancy, and just advice. So this is what he says. This is the hope. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. This hope, the love of God in Jesus' resurrection, is the basis for Paul being beheaded, for Paul, for Peter being crucified upside down, for an early church martyr named Polycarp being burnt alive while singing a hymn, and for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are currently being beheaded by ISIS. See, this is not superficial therapeutic hope. It is historic love. And so if someone's saying, this is the longest 10-minute introduction ever, it's okay, hang in there. See, Philippians, then, is an encouragement to endure in God's love and hope in the face of pressure. 
You know, and they're tempted to go in a bunch of different ways. But with everything we have going on today, we're also tempted to go elsewhere for hope. In our text, Paul tells us that we have not reached the apex of Christianity. You haven't made it. You haven't reached the finish line. You've got to keep pressing on. So he says, press on, stand firm, walk or live in a manner according that is appropriate for a Christian. Basically, Paul says, I'm not there yet. And if I am an apostle who's seen Jesus resurrected, have not reached it, and continue to press on, guess what y'all got to do? Press on. Keep pressing on. And the mark of Christian maturity or mature faith is realizing you haven't arrived and you press on like Paul. Because of the hope, the certain love of Jesus to save his people, the Christian life is ordinary and the Christian life is radical. So one, the Christian life is ordinary. Two, the Christian life is radical. All right, so this is what I mean. The how of the Christian life is ordinary, and the why of the Christian life is radical. You get this mixed up, and you're going to live a really upside-down world, and you're going to be in either ditch, okay? So the practice of Christianity is ordinary. The basis for the Christian life is radical, So the Christian life is ordinary. In verse 16, he says, let us hold true to what we have attained. It is probably better translated, let us present ourselves accordingly. He's using military terminology to walk accordingly, the way you march in line with one another. You do it in the right way. And And so how do you do this? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Earlier in the book of Philippians, he tells them that your love abound more and more. So the Christian life is about love, but it also looks like this. looks like what Paul just told him. He confesses that he doesn't have it all together. So it confesses that you don't have it. You ain't got it. You're not perfect. Um, and I'll tell you this. I'm a self-righteous jerk. Okay? You want to know why? There are times that I feel really, really awesome because I live, like, downtown. It's so cool to live down. I didn't even choose to live downtown. I called Mark Bates, and he told me, where do I live? And Mark Bates, the pastor of Village 7 Presbyterian Church, and he says, you're living downtown. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and so whenever my friends, they suggest restaurants, they're all like, let's go to Panera. And I'm like, oh, goodness gracious, do we have to eat at another chain restaurant? You know, why? It's just a preference. And so that's, that's kind of part of my self-righteousness. My self-righteousness also comes out in thinking that I'm smarter than everybody. Someone comes up with some, some nifty theological thing like, do you know what I read? And I go, go ahead, buddy. I'm sure I've heard it. What? Come on, he's really excited about it. What's wrong with you? You see, you got to confess this junk. And you just say, you know what? Can you work on this, God? Can you work on this? You see... The beauty is is that Jesus has love for self-righteous jerks like me. Uh, This is the essence of verse 15. Christian maturity is marked by confessing you haven't arrived. You work out your salvation through prayer, by reading the word, by worshiping, and by sacrament. And this lets you empathize with those who fail. Imagine if it was always up to you never to fail. You can never fail. You're going to be ridiculously just defensive. No one's going to like being around you because you're going to be you're going to be the one up man. Someone says, "Hey, I climbed a 14 or be like, "Yeah, I climbed Mount Everest." Who are you? Okay? No one's going to want to be around that person. 
And that isn't the way the Christian life is lived. It's ordinary. Uh, Verses 12 through 15, he says this, You imitate me and keep your eyes fixated on it, and those who do likewise. He says, press on, in verses 12 through 14. And this is it, okay? Press on. It's like a running term, all right? So any, any runner out here or cyclist, okay? Do you know what you do when you get really, really tired and you need to finish the race while you're running? You put one foot in front of the other rapidly. It's called running, right? It's really ordinary, Or if you're a cyclist and you're going up a hill, do you know what you do? You just keep pedaling. Sure, you may paperboy it up the mountain, but sometimes the Christian life is lived like paperboying. It's very ordinary, okay? And so this is what it is. You live the ordinary life. He's not saying, so Paul does not say this, hey, you yourself, you go get yourself thrown in jail like I did. Start a revolution. Get rid of the Romans. And he does not say that the Christian life is lived by getting a big Last Supper tattoo on your back. He doesn't say you need to get into all the positions of political power in order that you could change the entire country. He does not say that you need to move to India without raising support because I am so spiritual or starting a Christian band. No, the Christian life is ordinary. The Christian life is lived out by you living next to ordinary people, doing ordinary things, just loving them the way Christ has loved you. You show up for your neighbor. You show up for your loved ones. You show up for your coworker. It's ordinary. It's just putting one foot in front of another. You see, if you begin to build your hope on your spiritual performance, you will fall into either ditch. But the ordinary Christian life is lived by cafeteria workers, lawyers, construction laborers, mothers, baristas. And when the culture is saying, you know, is is against you, you know what you do? You just love God and love neighbor. You love God and you love neighbor. And the way you start to do this is you do ordinary habits, everyday things, everyday Christian things. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your family. It is the easiest way to say, you know what, I don't have it together. I am not the Christ. I cannot save my family. And so you do ordinary things. Pray for neighbor. Pray for your family. You know what else you do? You do acts of service. You start pulling the weeds for your neighbor who let their, let their berm, the area between their sidewalk and their, their, um, the road, grow, get overgrown. Just pull some weeds for them. Just show up. You invite your neighbor to have, have you know, hang out over at your fire pit and roast some marshmallows with them. It's ordinary things that the Christian life does. You know, but, the, but God also gave these ordinary habits for the Christians to grow. So, read the Word. What I want you to do, you ready for this? I want you to think of reading God's Word, of sitting in the hot tub of love. Okay? I want you to sit in there and just relax in it. Because there you know about loving God and loving neighbor. And you have a reason to love God and love neighbor because Jesus is on every page pushing you forward. All right? My life was changed by an ordinary Christian, an ordinary Christian rooted in God's love. And it was this everyday love that he did. He just, he just came to work. He was the most respected man. 
His name was Kevin Blackstone. He was a teacher in my senior high. I had him freshman year, and I had him senior year for AP Biology. And he was the most respected, wisest teacher. He just showed up, and he worked hard. And this is what happened. One day, after a really hard, hard, I've been having hard years since middle school. My mom left my dad at that time. My world has been turned upside down. At this time, I'm a secular atheist, basically, by the time I'm in senior year in high school. There's no way God can exist. Mr. Blackstone did what he normally did. He did what was ordinary. So he starts this subject, this, this piece, and he says this. He's like, you know, microevolution, small change in, in the same species over a long period of time, no intervention. Yeah, I, I could probably buy that. But macroevolution, lightning from primordial soup, creating amino acid chains, the building blocks for proteins, which then goes into everything you need for the genetic diversity of life and cells and everything like that without any outside intervention, well, that seems far-fetched. And apparently he'd done this every year, and I had it in the first year, and it just didn't hit me. But I think, the, I think God, the Holy Spirit, had just kind of did a little Y incision on my heart and then my chest cavity, and then he just poked me. Because the next thing he said was so crazy. He said, but more than that, evolution cannot explain for you, give you a justification for living. Can't tell you what love is. Can't explain what's beautiful. And I just sat there, stunned. And I couldn't figure it out. And so it took me another year before I figured out that divine intervention is God. And more than that, Jesus Christ came to save me from my sins. And I was asking Christians all kinds of questions. But you see what God used? Ordinary, normal, showing up. It isn't anything insane. It is ordinary Christianity rooted in true hope. But the Christian life is also radical. And you're like, all right, man, you're messing here. Radical and ordinary, starting to sound like an oxymoron right next to each other. But it's this. Radical has to do with the Latin word radax, which means roots. So what is it rooted in? It's radical because the basis or the nature of Christianity is different from the rest of the culture. You see, it's it's all about where you place your hope or where you find love. Otherwise, you end up in apathy or despair. All right? And so the Christian faith is rooted in this. The Christian faith is radical because it's rooted in the story of God's love. God's love in Jesus Christ for the unlovely. And this is the, way, this is the story of that Christian love. That Christian love is that God existed in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, pouring out intimate love on one another from eternity. And he wanted to share that love, and so he created a world which can experience that love. And man to get that love and to share it with one another. But man rebelled against that love, misplacing their hope and love and all other things, and it broke that relationship. And so Jesus Christ came as God himself to throw himself into the world, to have himself torn apart in order that love would be restored, in order that you would enjoy the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. And so that's what it's grounded in. And it says this in verse 19. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, 
where we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body because Christ Jesus has made me his own. If you rest and receive and you, you get Jesus Christ, you've let the story of the gospel hit you in the chest, then what you've got is that you are a child of God. He has adopted you. He has brought you in. And you are not ever going to be left. And so this is in contrast then to the Roman hope. And the Roman hope, the Roman emperor was to bring about peace, the Pax Romana. And the Caesars were, were to be worshipped as the Lord. But Paul says, ah, you're worshipping them as Lord? Nope, you got the wrong hope. That isn't going to work. You see, then there's also now the idea of hope in self, your ability to attain for yourself. So he says this about the people who hope in themselves. He says that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. The glory is their shame with mindset on earthly things. It is people who have worked really hard to make their family in order, to have lots of money. And he says that hope can't save you. It isn't going to help you press on. You know, their glory is their shame. They have the wrong root, and therefore the fruit is either apathy or self-righteousness. All right? And we can Christianize the self-centered righteous hope. You know, we could say things like, we can Christianize the the self-righteousness. We could say, you know, what you need to do is just kind of let go and let God. You know, that's more or less apathy. You know, I will wait. And I don't, I don't need to press on, I don't need to do, I don't need to read my Bible, I don't need to, you know, go to church. I'm just going to wait until God changes my desires. You know, and, and so people, people would say this to me, like, because I worked with college students, college students were notorious for this. They were like, you know, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait until God really just kind of warms my heart. And I'm like, all right, buddy, um, you know, if you're thirsty, where do you go? And they're like, to the water fountain. I'm like, so you have to do the ordinary things in order to quench your thirst, right? And I'm like, how are you ever going to develop an appetite for something unless you go to it? Um, Let me tell you this. When I was a kid, I hated shrimp. Hated it. Couldn't stand it. Drove me nuts. It was disgusting. But then my parents kept feeding it to me. And guess what? I developed an appetite for shrimp. You know, it's like that first time kids watch out here. The first time when you get older and you turn 21 and then you have that first sip of wine, you're like, whoa! And you lie to all your friends. They're like, oh, that's good. You know, it's an acquired taste. You have to work on your appetites. And so that's what happens here. You can't just let go and let God. You know, their God is their belly. They do whatever they want. And so you have to do something countercultural to that. The next way is, you know what? You need to just obey. Just get it together. And this view tries to leverage God. It says, God, look at all I've done. Look at all I've done. You have to give me what I want. And here's the thing. Both of these have the wrong root. Both try to leverage God. And one will will leave you either bitter and cold and unloving toward others, or the other one will leave you completely self-righteous. You know, Christianity is about your identity. It's about your root. You see, so the fruit of the Christian life looks rather ordinary. Love God, love neighbor. But the root is radical. 
It is built on, Christ, on Jesus Christ. See, it's a citizenship. You know, um, you build your identity on the story of shame and guilt. You know, you're always going to feel on unwor- you're going to feel on un- worthless, unworthy, unlovable all the time. But here's the thing. You know, the question you need to ask is like, how in the world could I possibly live a life after all he's done for me? Here's the thing. Your shame and your guilt cannot keep you from God. Your shame and your guilt See, Charles Spurgeon said it right. He said, There Jesus was, nailed, bleeding, dying, looking down on those who would betray him, and in the greatest act of love, he stayed. He stayed. He didn't have to die for those who would betray him. And some of us are feeling the shame and guilt of betraying him even this week with what we view on the Internet, with how we treat our coworkers, with how we treat our uh, spouses. But that can't separate you. can't separate you. You don't have to be radical. You're free to be ordinary because Christ, Jesus Christ has done all the radical for you. It's rooted in love. And love gets you out of the ditches. Love powers the pressing on. The standing firm, the imitation. Uh, the author J.K. Rowling says this in a book. Love as powerful as your mother's. Talking about a mother's sacrificial love for her son. For you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been so, loved so deeply, even though the person is gone, will give you some protection forever. It's in your very skin. Your entire identity is one marked by love. It's not shame and guilt. Your entire identity is marked by love in Jesus Christ. You are loved by God. You are his child. Uh, Let me put it this way. What does it look like when love gets into your skin? I was once at a water park, and my son was probably four or five years old, deathly afraid. And the ordinary thing would have been for him to join the other four or five years old, five-year-olds and just careening down the water slide. It's just an ordinary thing. You just get up there and go down. And he is freaked out. He's just like, I ain't doing that. Mm-mm. And he's like four or five. And I look down at him and I said, son, you know, other kids are doing it. It's not a big deal. You know, you could just go do that. And then I I see my other little ones running around. So I'm like, hey, I got to go catch my little ones. And then suddenly I look back and my son is gone. I'm like, oh, no. What happened? And I turn around and there he is walking up the stairs of the water slide, shivering. And I don't know if it's fear or if he was cold. I'm pretty sure it was fear. Okay. And he gets to the top and I'm like, and he looks at me and he's like, and he goes down, and he careens into the into the to the to the pool at the end, and he's you know short, so he's struggling. And so I pick him up, and I get him out, and I'm like, "What in the world got into you?" You know, it was an ordinary thing for him to go down a water slide. Everyone else was doing it, but I asked him, "What got into you?" And he says this. He said, "Dad, I know you love me, and you won't let anything terrible happen to me." 
And when you get love in the heart like that, you're free to love your neighbor in ordinary ways. You're free to love your coworkers. You're free to love your spouse. And it gets you deep down in the heart. When you get Jesus Christ's love for you on your heart, it'll change you. Fix your eyes, your mind, on your hope. All of it, root it in Jesus Christ. And see him taking your shame and guilt. Watch it being nailed to a cross. And rejoice in the life you have in this historic, real resurrection that is built on true hope. And it fuels the Christian life and the love for your neighbor. Rooted not in yourself, but in love of God for you. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, you are kind and loving. Help us to know that our story is one of love. It is not guilt and shame. And this story of love frees us to live radically ordinary life before the world. So that you would be known. That your love would be known amongst our neighbors. At our workplaces. At the gym. At the grocery store. At the auto mechanic. Help us to show up where we need to show up and be your hands and feet. Help us to be gracious and loving this week. And Lord, I pray as we take these ordinary elements, bread and wine, and we take it by faith, I pray that you would radically strengthen us for the work of your mission. Lord, help us now as we partake in your meal, as we feast on your love. Help us to take it in worthy ways according to our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.